Welcome everyone, everyone to the eighth episode of the Humans of Sydney podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Tim Sharp, who's a leader in the field of positive psychology. Um, I'm just going to read off what you've done, Tim, because honestly I can't remember because there's so much. So um, you're a speaker, facilitator, consultant, um, podcaster, spokesman, brand ambassador. Um, you have a degree in clinical psychology. He's taught, he's taught at major um, universities done workshops with EY, IBM, Westpac, the list goes on. Um, but I just wanted to say that this will probably be one of the most important podcast episodes we do on the podcast. Um, today we're going to be talking about both mental health and happiness. I think mental health is a very contextual topic at the moment in our society, and happiness is a conversation that's been, gone, been going on since the start of society. So it should be really interesting. Tune in. We're going to start off with some kind of tips on mental health, some ways you can bring about your happiness, increase your happiness. So if you um, only stay for the first five minutes, you can look forward to that. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a while since we did our last podcast because we've been on exams, but um, we've got a really, really awesome guest today. Obviously, Tim's a leader in the field of positive psychology, one of probably like the leader in Australia. Um, so we're going to have a great yarn about yeah, happiness, mental health and stuff. And no matter who you are, whether you're a university student or not, I think there's going to be some gems in here. So listen up and I'm excited to chat. Yeah. Cool. Um, so the way I got connected with such an esteemed guest was through um, a connection I had at Batia, which is a mental health organisation. Um, would you say that it's similar to um, Beyond Blue um, in some ways? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, not really. Um, they're in a similar space, but uh, where they differ is so Beyond Blue offers information and services. Um, Batir is quite unique in that it's um, so specifically aimed at young people, that's for one thing, um, mostly high school and university. Um, but they don't provide services. Their main focus is on smashing the stigma associated with mental health. So it's all about uh, helping people understand it's okay not to be okay and to reach out and ask for help so, and then go to the service providers. Yeah. So they're kind of before, before the psychologists and before the psychiatrists and before those other experts. Okay. And before we dive fully into this, um, I think the reason that we've created this podcast now is that recently I had one of my good friends take his own life and it seems like a time that we need to get this message out more than ever. So mm. um, we'd like to start off by asking you, what do you think are your top kind of tips for people to increase their mental well-being, especially at the university age and along with it, happiness? Yeah. Yeah, look, it's always a bit hard to limit it to a few, but, um, but I'm sure we'll cover some more later, so don't go away after the first few minutes. But, um, but if I had to sort of list, you know, maybe the top three or five, um, uh, one of them is um, trying to find meaning and purpose. And I know that's really hard when you're yeah. younger, I suppose, and it's probably unrealistic to expect uh, you know, I certainly didn't have it um, at your age, um, but trying to find some direction, having goals. And that's, you know, I think we often forget when we leave high school, which is pretty structured and you kind of mm. know exactly where you're supposed to be and what's supposed to happen. You're kind of told what to do. And then you get to university um, where there's a lot more freedom. And yeah. that's fantastic. I think we all, you know, I still remember loving that freedom and independence. But for some of us, that can be daunting. It can be a bit overwhelming. So, so that's one thing is to try and find some structure, try and find some direction. Uh, another one is probably our physical health and well-being. Um, you know, a lot of people, uh, we were chatting earlier about going to the gym, a lot of people think exercising is about our you know, physical health, and it is obviously, but it's just as important for our mental health. Um, exercise is a potent stress buster and antidepressant. And again, a lot of us, well, I did, but you know, I played a lot of sport at school. I love my sport and I left school and almost stopped overnight. Um, mm. Now, not everyone does. Some people continue at university or beyond, but for me, that was a big loss. Um, 
both socially um, but also physically. So you know, try to keep active. Um, I know uh, you know we do a lot of things that are not necessarily good for our health when we're young and at university, um, and that's okay. It's okay to have fun, but you know try to find some balance. Try and find some time for. Um, for physical health and well-being as well. And that's also about getting good sleep. You know, that's another mm. thing that suffers, I think, when we get out into the world and start having fun and have freedom. So, you know, try and find some direction and set goals. Look after your physical health. Um, uh, maintain your relationships. Uh, again, it's um, it's sometimes easier to lose touch with school friends. Um, uh, you can make new friends at university, of course, but for some people that's harder than others. So, um, And people might move cities or states or go to different universities but it is worth making that effort um you know what we know from the research is that good friendships are almost certainly the most important thing to protect against mental ill health but also to promote happiness and well-being mm. um, so that's probably the top three i mean there are other some i guess some simple practices like um we we're talking earlier about gratitude you know, certainly the practice of gratitude and appreciation is really helpful reasonably simple um but really helpful uh, things like mindfulness and meditation practice again can be really really helpful um and you know just other basics like eating a good diet etc so yeah hitting on that first point that you said of um, finding a direction and purpose so i think yeah a lot of university students they come out of this structured like ecosystem in high school and they're in this state of constant flux they've got a lot of things different things happening in their life by direction and purpose, do you mean like finding their life purpose, which they commit to, or what do you mean? How do you find that as well, a university student? Well, if you can, yes. Um, but for a lot of us, that's impossible. Mm. Um, you know, I, again, I certainly didn't have a clue. I remember, um, well, most of my friends didn't either. I remember there was one or two friends who kind of knew exactly what they wanted to do. And mm. I, I remember feeling almost a bit jealous, not well, that's yeah, probably not the right yeah. word, but thank God. We feel that a lot, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been really nice because I, yeah. I had no idea at all. Yeah. Um, I even I finished the whole first degree with an honours degree and I still had no idea at all. Yeah. So it is difficult and, and, it's, and it's, again, it's probably a bit unrealistic. Um, it's, it's a lifetime pursuit in sure. a way. But what I probably wish I'd done a bit more then is, is even just setting shorter term goals. Because, mm -hmm. again, we have that at school in a way. Um, and I suppose you've got that in university in you know, the next exam or the end of your degree or whatever it might be. But outside of that as well, um, you know, finding something or staying, sticking to doing things that, that give you a sense of purpose and meaning, yeah. whatever that might be. Um, how do you find it? Uh, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it's just trial and error. So experimentation yeah, sure. or looking to others, looking at, you know, who, who your heroes are or who, who do you admire and what do mm. they do? And um, uh, again, just trying things out until you find it. And when you do find something, stick with it. <laughs> yeah. Some yeah. of the, like most of the tips you mentioned all kind of rely on having a structured life. Um, would that be correct? Well, having the discipline to kind of um, follow that structured routine, follow that exercise, follow that meditation, follow that getting that sleep. Um, how do you think, I think most people know that those are things they need to do. But what, what are some practical ways to actually go about implementing them in your life? A really good question. Well, there's probably about two or three really good questions in there. Um, so what, what I want to, what I probably should start by saying is that um, that everyone's different, and I think that's an important note. So I can I know what works for me. Um, I've learned what works for me over many years, but that probably won't be exactly the same as you and uh, and everyone else out there. We're all mm. different. Um, so I very much do like structure. It works really well for me. It helps me a lot. But that doesn't mean I don't need and want and try to create room for spontaneity and adventure. You know that's important as well. I don't, we don't. When I say structure, it's not about planning every single minute of every day. That'd be um, well, be a bit boring, really. Yeah. It's a bit robot-like. So, so in many ways, I think what we're referring to is is what psychologists technically call self-regulation, and this is um, uh, one of the uh, one of the sort of most important constructs in psychology. But it doesn't get a lot of attention, probably because it's 
or either a bit boring or it seems sort of a bit unsexy in a way, but the ability to regulate our emotions and our behaviours, the ability to say, well, you know, again, I'm going to the gym today, um, which we all know. So this, this sort of touches on important, another important idea, which is the knowing-doing gap. <laughs> we all know what we should do, but yeah. we don't always do what we should do. Um, you know, so whether it's eating healthily, going to the gym regularly, practising meditation, um, if you ask a lot of people, they know what they should do. You know, mm. I tell people all the time stuff that they already know but it's the trick is how do we get that person actually doing it on a regular basis and that's when I you know, I've been lucky enough to work with some really successful happy people when we look at them um, they do what everyone else knows but they do it regularly yeah. um, now again in your early 20s it's um, you know it's, it's um, probably unrealistic to sort of expect that you'd have that degree of stability because you're still trying things out you're still finding yourself but but yes if you can find that uh, Again, self-regulation, which means um, it's it's like emotional intelligence. I don't know if you're banding, sort of throwing around a whole lot of jargon, but the ability to recognise, you know, how am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I doing? Is that helpful? I mean, is it sort of taking me where I want to get to? And if not, what do I need to do to change that? Or if it is, how do I keep doing that on a daily basis? Mm. Touching on um, thinking about how we're feeling, let's say, for example, um, someone is feeling anxious and they're just not sure about why they're feeling anxious, that feeling in their chest where they're just, something just seems a little bit off. I think a lot of people in our generation get that, but when they look, try and look into it deeper, they don't know what's actually causing it. Sometimes it can just be the coffee jitters, but then sometimes it can be something else. How do you kind of go about like investigating into that? And is there a point where you should just kind of let it go or just be like, try and really nail down to the crux of it? Um, yeah, another great question. So firstly, um, anxiety is a normal human emotion. Um, uh, and what so historically psychologists have divided up the emotions into two categories the the positive emotions like happiness joy contentment calm satisfaction and the negative emotions stress depression anxiety i don't really like to divide them into the i don't really like to divide them like that because it implies that the negative emotions are bad mm. and they're not really um you know anxiety is a normal human emotion it actually serves a useful purpose uh, at times you know if we didn't have fear um, we do all sorts of dangerous stuff. You know, fear stops us from taking risks. Uh, I guess in, in the old, from an evolutionary perspective, fear, you know, stopped us walking too close to the cliff yeah. edge or patting the lion. Or so we need to have fear and anxiety, anger and sadness and grief are all normal human emotions. So, so that's the first point. Um, even though I talk a lot about happiness, um, I also talk a lot about accepting that full range. It's okay. To, it's okay to be sad sometimes. I mean. You know, really sorry, you lost a, a friend recently. It would be abnormal if you didn't feel sad. Um, if you've got exams coming up, it would be abnormal if you didn't feel some sort of anxiety. Now, obviously, the degree is going to differ from person to person, but but that's the first thing we do need to accept that these are normal human emotions, and and they're not all bad. They're okay a lot of the time. Um, there is a point at which they can be uh, dysfunctional, I suppose. So we don't want them to go on too long. We don't want them to be too intense because if they're starting to impact on our daily functioning, you know, if my anxieties, um, if it's stopping me from um, going to job interviews, if it's stopping me from going to parties or social occasions, if it's in interfering with my ability to live my life in any way, then that, that's problematic and that's when we might want to see a, a psychologist. But uh, and and that's that's what can help to understand it. Now, th there isn't always a reason for some of these emotions, I think. Sometimes, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on in our body all the time. There's so much going on that we don't understand. All sorts of hormones and neurotransmitters all buzzing around. Sometimes that will um, you know, express itself in different sorts of emotions. Um, but if we can, one of the, I guess one of the simplest ways is to sort of stop and try and ask yourself, you know, What's going through my mind now? What am I thinking about? Um, and then if we can try and identify particular thoughts or 
particular themes that might lead us to identifying what's going on and then maybe a solution. Okay. In saying that, so obviously there's these negative emotions and we should try and accept it. Should we be chasing or happiness all the time? And should it be like our primary purpose in life? And if it is, is there an actual intrinsic value in happiness? Like why should that be sort of one's purpose in life? As a little extension of that question, um, something me and Adam have discussed heavily is that we've kind of sometimes got into a trap where we get really angry at ourselves if we're not happy because we want to be in these prime states. Mm. And sometimes it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy when you get angry at yourself. If you're not happy, then you don't get happy. And yeah. it just yeah. So should it be that goal and why? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> no yeah. So the first thing I think that comes out of there is, is that no one will be happy all the time. Yeah. So that's, the, that's a really important thing. It sounds kind of obvious in a way, but it is important because mm. you know, sometimes we get upset with ourselves for not being happy. Well, if you think about it, if you take it to the extreme, you think if you were happy every minute of every day, that'd be pretty freaking weird. It'd lose its value. Well, it'd be pretty weird. Like seriously, yeah. if you think of someone smiling and laughing every minute of every day, mm. that's it's just not normal. It's, mm. it's really not. It'd be inappropriate in a lot of ways. So, so that is the first point. We do need to understand that no one's happy all the time. And going back to the point I made earlier, you know, it's normal to be anxious sometimes. It's normal to to be irritable or angry or. Um, so that's the first thing. Given that, or even even taking that into account, should we chase happiness? And that's actually a, a really interesting debate. And we, there are different um, opinions on that. Um, there is some research that suggests um, that the idea of wanting happiness and trying to be better and living our best life can be a good thing. It's motivating. Mm-hmm. It's inspiring. It yep. leads us to then engage in you know healthy behaviours. But there's some other research that suggests that if we focus on it too much, and particularly in the wrong way, it can be counterproductive. Sure. So, but I think what that's getting to is if we, if we focus on it so much and expect us to have it all the time. So if our goal is unrealistic, that's when it can become problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so coming back to the anxiety, mm-hmm. if so, we want to what we're trying to create. I think a lot of mental health organisations in this generation trying to create a um, culture where everyone talks of if they're anxious, they can reach out to their friend, their parent. If someone actually reaches out to you and says, "Okay, I'm feeling anxious," what what do you say to them? It's a really good question because because there's been a, as I said, there's been a lot of focus. So I mean, you mentioned Beyond Blue before, but one of the other um, big organisations, Are You Okay Day? Yeah, um, I'm sure, pretty sure you've heard of that. Um, uh, and they've been massively successful in in creating awareness and. Um, largely, I think, and what I love and what many people love is, is the simplicity of their idea. Just that one question, are you okay? Yeah. But what, uh, well, more so in the early days, I think they've got a lot better at it now, but in the early days, they didn't really address that. So if, mm. if I ask you, are you okay? And you say, well, no, I'm feeling pretty shit. What do I do? A lot of people yeah. feel quite scared or, you know, not everyone has qualifications in psychology like me. So that's a difficult one. And, and I found that, um, I mentioned to you guys earlier that I, um, so I've suffered depression almost, experienced depression mm. almost all of my adult life. Most of the worst of it was during my university days, um, due to some of the reasons I, I talked about earlier. I had no direction. Um, I was living an incredibly unhealthy life. I was drinking and consuming substances that I probably couldn't have, shouldn't have drunk and consumed in the amounts I was doing. Um, and, you know, not looking after myself, et cetera, et cetera. So I, 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 if you were to look at it, if you look at the lifestyle factors, like a lot of university students, I was doing everything wrong, yeah. so it wasn't a huge surprise. But there were some other things as well. But but I didn't tell anyone. Um, I, I kind of assumed my, oh sorry, apart from my immediate family, but I kind of assumed my friends knew because I was, I was yeah. so miserable. I actually um, made two attempts to end my life, and I, again, I just assumed that they knew because I was hospitalised. But but apparently they didn't. 
And I only sort of, I talk about coming out, <laughs> came out with my mental health problems um, only a few years ago and largely due to the work that I've been doing with Batir that you mentioned. So thanks to Batir who were you know, spreading the message that it's okay to tell stories. And so it's probably five or six years ago when I first started working with Batir that I started telling my story publicly. I told a few close friends before that. But this is an issue that came up. Even some, some of my best friends and people that I, you know, quite close to just didn't know how to respond. Um, and in fact, a few of them just did nothing. And I was sort of a bit shocked or not so much offended, but I just, I didn't, when they did nothing, I didn't know what to do then. Yeah. So it was interesting. And, and I suppose the answer to your question is, um, uh, you know, not everyone will know how to respond. And that's if, if we are. So we do want to encourage people to come out. We do want to encourage people. But we need to be realistic about our expectations of others. And if you, you know, just to say you've got 10 friends, not all of those 10 will respond yeah. in the best way. But there will almost certainly be one or two that do. And so it's not about the other ones being bad. They're not bad friends or bad people. They just, for whatever reason, you know, don't know what to say. So I guess what I've done is focus on the couple that do know and who have been really supportive. And then I guess we can try and educate the other ones as well. Um, but for those people who don't know what to say, what I'd say is, is don't be scared. You don't worry about saying the perfect thing. Just yeah. just be a mate. Just yeah. be a friend. Um, just uh, like, are you, I'm here whenever you need me kind yeah. of thing. Just uh, So right, so a lot of people get hung up on what to say, but they don't really have to say that much. If they, if they just have they to listen. listen. Yeah. Yeah. That's just sure. as important. And again, just saying I'm here. I just say, look, I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do, but I'm here. And I'll, you know, we can go and have a coffee or we can do what you know yeah. go for a walk it, or whatever it is yeah there seems to be a bit of a crisis at the moment i think i've read this on your website about men's mental health at the moment in australia it doesn't seem like it's in a very good place six out of eight suicides of males at the moment do you think this is partly because men have a lack of ability of being vulnerable and we don't know how to speak up as well as females undoubtedly um I'll preface that by saying it's a complicated issue and there are a range yeah, of, of factors, course. but that is yeah. undoubtedly one of them. Um, and again, when I, um, you know, going back 400 years when I was your age, you know, it was even worse, even more of a problem. We just yeah. didn't, blokes just didn't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I had have, had and have you know, really good friends, friends that I'd see all the time and we go out all the time, but we just didn't talk about anything of substance. Mm. You know, you talk about the footy, you talk about, you talk about anything apart from how you feel, basically. Yeah. Now, it is a bit better. Well, it's a lot better now, I think. But there is still a big problem. And, and I suppose what got... Well, there's a couple of things that got me really interested in, in that topic, but one of which is being the father of a teenage son now. Um, and it's interesting watching him, and it's definitely better. There's no... Or maybe it's just him and his friends, I don't know, but certainly in his group, it is a lot better. I hear some of the things they talk about, and it's fantastic, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. And the, you know, this idea that men need to be tough and strong, and uh, I mean, I was watching the... Uh, actually, so the footy just last night, mm. if you follow the rugby league. And um, Gordon Tallis, who was one of the uh, commentators before the game, um, who was a, I don't know if you follow rugby league, but he was a, basically a really tough forward. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the toughest guys going around. He's retired now, obviously. But he was watching, one of the guys he played with, he's now a coach, um, was um, was presenting the, it's a long story, presenting the jersey to his son, who was making his debut. And Gordon started crying, telling it because I didn't know this, but apparently Kevy Walters... Um, his wife had died quite a while ago from breast cancer, and so he's a mm. single father, and it was a really tough time, obviously. And this is uh, Gordon Tellers on TV, this, this tough guy, um, crying. And I just thought, that's fantastic. Like, we just, yeah. not, not that he was upset, but you know, we just wouldn't have seen that. Yeah. Um, and you've seen more and more of that now, um, you know, sports players and high profile people admitting to some of these things, mm. which is really important because people look up to them. Yeah. What's leading um, this cultural shift? 
Well, there've been um, there've been a few things. So I, I did this uh, podcast a, a year or two ago with a guy called Gus Warland, who's a Triple J, um, oh, sorry, Triple M, um, uh, on the grill team at Triple M. He's had a very strong interest in it, and we, so we did this podcast called Be a Man, which is uh, we interviewed um, uh, I can't remember now, I think like twelve different people. Um, with the main idea being that there is no one way to be a man, yeah. um, and that was our main message. There's there's uh, multiple ways to be a man. I think that's really important, you know. So not everyone is or wants to be the tough guy, and it's okay to be a, a what used to be called softer, I suppose, or um, um, you know that the, the characteristics that we've traditionally associated with masculinity are not uniform, um, and they're not necessarily helpful because they're part of what's leading to those statistics. Okay. So so those six out of eight, um, you know, suicides, that's partly driving this. That the mm-hmm. fact that men are literally um, killing themselves. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, killing others. So the domestic violence debate is related to this as well. I mean, why are men the primary, um, uh, you know, primarily guilty of violence against other people? It's almost, you know, it's 80, 90% men. And that's partly due to some of these inabilities to, to properly manage their lives and their emotions. So mm-hmm. um, there's a whole range of factors that we need to address. So do... It seems like there's a certain amount of characteristics that men have traditionally adhered to, and now there's this sort of cultural shift. Are you saying that we should adhere to certain sort of characteristics and norms of being a men less, or just embrace another side, which is that more vulnerable and sort of softer side? Well, I don't or think we should define masculinity or femininity at all, to be honest. Okay. When I, so when I think about it, and I've thought a lot about this over the last few years, and I think, what does it mean to be a good man? Well, if yeah. you think about it, what does it mean to be a good man, and what does it mean to be a good woman? Would there really be any differences? We're, we're talking about as being good people. That's what I think we should focus on. What does it take to be a good human? You know, kindness. Is it, you know, should women be better at that than men? Well, why can't a man be kind? Compassion, love, uh, supporting our mates. Just why should men be so, why should women be so much better at that than men? So, but don't males and females have a more of a tendency to go in some directions than others? Like if you look well, this at is the psychometric yeah. um, personality tests and you'll see things like, um, oh, not kindness, but... Um, uh, I forget, there's different qualities in women, for I example. Compassion. Compassionate. It's the uh, Jordan Peterson five qualities. Um, test. I don't really trust what he said, but... Well, that's, well, so no, but that's it's worth raising it, because that's a good point. So this is part of the And bait. males and females, they, they're attracted to some qualities yeah. more than others. So, yeah, so it's re- I'm glad you raised it, because it's a really, really important. So that's part of the debate is, you know, aren't we evolutionary or, or genetically programmed to be yeah. different? Um, you know, men with a hunter-gatherers, women with a... Um, you know, that the, they looked after the, mm. the homes, whatever. Um, so in, to some extent, there is some evidence to support that. But what's probably stronger is the evidence to suggest that most of these things are culturally defined, not sort of genetically or evolutionary. So because even if you look across different cultures, the role of men is not always the same um, mm-hmm. in, you know, in Australia compared to well, you know, different parts of Asia or different parts of South America. Um, so there's a lot, it seems to be that there's a lot stronger influence from cultural factors, which means it's not something that we can't change. It's not something that we, um, you know, that's sort of ingrained within us. Um, and the Jordan Peterson, um, the men's rights movement, which is, is a sort of group of MRAs, men's rights activists, who are saying, you know, let men be men, you know, we need to be strong and aggressive. Um, I think there's, they've misinterpreted a lot of the research. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson, for one, who's probably been the most famous advocate in the last year, has been criticised by many people for his misuse or um, sort of cherry-picking of research. And, you know, you can pull out bits of research to support anything if you want, but if you look at the broader issues... Um, 
Even still, I mean, and so even if you do, the, the other point I would make is that even if you do accept that we have some genetic difference, and, and I mean, obviously we're different, there's no mm. one's disputing mm. the fact that men and women are exactly the same. Um, but even if, you, um, even if you accept the fact that we're, uh, we're different and men do have certain traits, um, that doesn't mean we can't override them. I mean, yeah. we, we, don't, we don't walk around in loincloths with spears anymore, do we? Yeah. Um, we don't kill animals out on the street anymore. We've, we've supposedly um, matured and become civilised, and there are lots of things that, even if we accept they're masculine, are simply not helpful anymore. Mm-hmm. In, in the mo- you know, we live in a modern society. It's you know, almost in 2020. Um, so things like equality in the workplace, um, I would argue, are important. Um, to say that men should be dominant, I would argue, is not necessarily helpful. To, to downgrade um, or to diminish the role of 50% of the population is a waste. Um, so, yeah, but it, it, there's certainly a lot of debate around yeah, that. Um, yeah, we could have a whole separate podcast on that yeah. one, I think. Um, so there's two things I want to um, bring up. So the first is the stigma around seeing a psychologist. I think that while the stigma of mental health has improved, I think people inherently think if you see a psychologist, you have something wrong with you. Um, so what I want to ask is, if you're, if you're feeling anxious and depressed, how do you know if that's anxiety or depression? Is it worth defining it as that? And how do you know when to see a psychologist if the, the things you detailed at the start of the podcast, podcast aren't working? Yeah, good question. Um, so there are actually a lot of obstacles um, that can make it difficult to see a psychologist. Stigma is one of them, but, but finances is another one. Yeah. Um, you know, we have thankfully in, um, what's well, the, the last 10 years or so, have, there's been a Medicare rebate. And when I first started out, there wasn't. So uh, it, when I first started in private practice, um, to see a psychologist, people had to pay the full fee. Yeah. Um, now there's a, a pretty healthy um, Medicare rebate, which makes it much more affordable for a lot of people, which is great. That's pretty silly because a lot of low SES people are probably the ones that need. All right. So, so <laughs> that, well, that's made a big difference. But the other problem is geographical accessibility. Okay. So if you, you know, we're sitting in Sydney University, if you're in the centre of Sydney, it's not that hard to find someone. But as soon as you leave the big cities, if you walk out of Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, you know, get to some of the regional rural areas, there just aren't professionals there. Mm. Um, you know, it's the same with lawyers and accountants. There's, there just aren't doctors and specialists and psychologists. So, so that's still a big problem. Um, cost is a bit of a problem, although less so. Um, geographical accessibility, um, stigma, these are all problems. So, um, so this is but what we're seeing, though, um, and it's probably been slower than I thought it would be, but an increase in, in online resources, obviously, and online treatments, which is yeah. fantastic. It's a really exciting development. I mean, I thought it would have happened by now, and it is, but... Um, it's taken a bit longer as these things do, and that's, that's okay. But, um, but coming back to your question, so how do you know whether anxiety or depression is normal? When does it become abnormal, I suppose? I know um, it all exists on a spectrum, but... It does, so that's, that's a good point. It is a spectrum, but the, the simplest way to understand it is if it's having a significant impact on your ability to live the life you want to live. Um, so if you can still, you know, if, if, we get a, if we get a bit anxious, but you can still go out socialising or you can still do things, then... Yeah, that's okay. You still might want to see a psychologist because you can still get better on that. But um, another thing, just quickly, mm-hmm. is what's the difference between stress and anxiety, in your opinion? So stress and anxiety are kind of like first cousins. Yeah. Um, they're part of the same family. Stress isn't a technical disorder. Um, anxiety isn't either. There's, there's a range of anxiety disorders, but they're they're essentially the same thing. I wouldn't okay. uh, I wouldn't sort of get into too much of a different bit. Yeah. But I guess to come back to the question, if you're debating, what should I see as uh, or, no, not just a psychologist, you know, counsellor, psychiatrist, a mental health professional. Um, I'd say if you're unsure, do it. 
you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. If, if it's upsetting you enough to even think about that question, then see someone or even your GP, even just talk to the GPs vary in their ability to understand this area. But there are lots of good GPs now who, um, and if you just want to go in and ask them, should I, they'll probably ask you a few questions and they might be able to help you. Um, there are, um, particularly for younger people, headspace dropping centres where you can drop in. And, so, and there's a lot of great free information on the net now. So, you know, we've mentioned a few of them, Headspace, Beyond Blue, Black Dog, um, Are You OK, Sane Australia. Lifeline. Lifeline. So, yeah, there's, a, and there's some really good information on a lot of those um, websites, both um, sort of diagnostic information, but also simple practical tips. Uh, Reach Out is another one for young people that has some really good, um, uh, what do you call them, forums and discussion rooms and stuff like that. So, yeah, so, yeah if you're unsure, I'd say do it. Um, and... You don't have to wait till you're at absolute rock bottom. You know, mm. I'd rather people did it a lot earlier. Um, the earlier, like with any other health problem, I suppose, the earlier you get in, the easier it can be to treat, um, and you know, the more likely you are to, to get better quicker. It's interesting about this stigma in Australia because we have friends in Spain, and apparently it's very common for someone to have just like a counsellor, someone to talk to, yeah, even without any people. mental health difficulties. And I think that we should change the way we're thinking about it, as in. We drink things like coffee to become more productive. We do exercise to become more productive. And seeing a psychologist is just a natural way of having better thoughts or understanding your thoughts a bit better. Well, exactly. And that, so, the, yeah, well, the similar metaphor that I often use is, um, again, we talked about going to the gym, I go to the gym, but one, one day a week I have a personal trainer. Um, and it's the same sort of thing. I'm not, you know, why would anyone be embarrassed about that? He helps me, um, you know, he changes my programs. He helps me push me a bit further. A psychologist can be the same. They can help design a program to help you be not stronger in the same way, but stronger mentally. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be in the same way you see a personal trainer or maybe a nutritionist if you're trying to change your diet or maybe you go to your tutor if you're struggling a bit with one of your assignments. Um, a, a psychologist or a, a coach can be um, you know, very, very helpful. Um, so what I want to touch on now is drug usage and mental health. Um, I think that in our generation, a lot of people mm-hmm. use drugs. Um, I think we're finding in my opinion, in this generation, a lot of very switched on people that do a lot of stuff in the, with their lives and stuff still use drugs. Um, given that drug use is going up in Australia, what do you think its effects are on mental health? And for people who are going to use drugs, are there, is there anything they can do for it not to mess up their mental health? Um, well, my generation used a lot of drugs as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not proud of that but it's um um and i i corrected it my understanding is drug use is actually going down um in most areas um uh, the the uh, use of alcohol is decreasing cigarette smoking is definitely decreasing um, um yeah yeah i think from what i read it was that alcohol usage is decreasing but drug usage is increasing other drug, well yeah yeah, alcohol yeah, yeah sorry well that's important note there because we often see alcohol in different obviously it's because it's legal, it is different. Yeah. But if you look at the research um, and look at the consequences of drug use and particularly the negative consequences, alcohol is the biggest problem drug by a long, long way. So it's important to not to just disregard yeah. that. Uh, particularly for blokes, I think we often just, you know, we just think it's okay. And, and it is okay in a way. But it's, it, is, it causes more problems than in, you know, all the other drugs put together. So we do need to, to focus a bit on that. But whatever the amount, you know, whatever the use is, um, you know, it's an important question because um, as much as I uh, like a drink um, and in my past, as much as I might have uh, liked dabbling with other substances, they can definitely be um, dangerous. They can have a deleterious effect in, in a whole lot of ways. Um, so, you know, the... the um, well, there's a... Um, 
They can exacerbate anxiety and depression. Uh, alcohol is a depressant. Uh, they can impact on your sleep, which can then have a significant impact on your mental health. Uh, they can affect relationships. Um, so the simple answer is, uh, I, I'm not, so personally, I would never, I'm not sort of an advocate of complete abstinence. Um, I don't think that necessarily works in the research is it's not really effective, particularly with younger people. But what we do need to help younger people with is to learn how to manage it really, um, because excessive use of almost anything, you know, excessive eating, um, excessive exercising even can be damaging, and certainly excessive drinking or any other drug use can be very, very dangerous. So we need to look out for it, we need to look out for our friends, we need to look out for warning signs, which again, you know, lack of sleep, um, variable mood, um, uh, unreliable behaviour, those sorts I, of I things. I raise this because mm. I, in my personal friends, I know a lot of people that just self-medicate themselves because mm. of mental health issues and they don't want to see a psychologist. They're very much against the idea. And personally, I don't know how to break this like self-medicating cycle. Like you can always say things, you know, but then... Well, it's, it's, yeah, look, it's a really good point. And that's certainly what we did. And that's what generations of people, particularly men, have done. Um, you know, I, I sometimes tell the story when my, my grandfather was, uh, um, was in Anzac, was in the First World War. And, you know, this is going back, um, oh God, what was that? He, he came back after that, you know, in the 19... 20s or 30s, whatever it was. Um, and, you know, there was no psychology there. There was no treatment. Him and his mates, um, the, the only treatment they had was, was down at the pub. Um, and I, in hindsight, he, he's no longer alive, obviously, but in hindsight, um, and I had a very close relationship. I loved him and, and tried to talk to him about it. And he would never talk about the war. And in hindsight, after I did my studies, he, he almost certainly had post-traumatic stress disorder. But he never talked about it, never got any help. I uh, said so the only treatment he had was beer and whiskey, um, which is not helpful. So, the, so the, the answer to the question is, it well, it kind of does help in the short term. That's what makes it difficult because, as we all know, if you're a bit stressed, a bit anxious, a bit upset, a couple of drinks can help. Um, it can settle the nerves. It can calm you down. But it it's, um, undoubtedly doesn't help in the long term, and it can actually be counterproductive. And I think that was certainly one of the... Um, you know, not the only factor, but one of the significant contributors in my, my depression. Um, I drank way too much. I took other substances way too often. Um, and because of the impact it had on, particularly on my mood and on my sleep and on a range of other factors, um, that was a pretty bad recipe for me. What, um, from your knowledge, like in drinking, I think we've got a big binge drinking culture in Australia. Mm. Like a lot of people, you might drink like a couple times during a week or you might just drink once a week, but you drink a lot. And I think a lot of young people don't understand how much should we actually drink um, that's healthy. <laughs> like I generally <laughs> don't think people know this um, that are young. Like, yeah. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, I don't. it's a good question. Well, so the simple answer is that there's not really any level that's healthy. Um, mm there are levels over which become distinctly unhelpful, unhealthy. Mm. And what I certainly think in Australia, and I've talked to, um, you know, with two teenage children, seeing them sort of get to that stage now and, and watching that carefully, but also talking to other people, my own experiences, and looking at other cultures. Again, there's a lot of cultural differences. So if you look in uh, particularly a lot of parts of Northern Europe, what we do here, and I don't know why it started or how it started, but a lot of us in Australia drink to get drunk. Yeah. If you go to Europe and you, um, or many other parts of the world, where drink, you know, drinking is a part of culture, but they drink, it's part of dinner, it's part of socialising. Um, I was actually just chatting to a friend, or you know, Facebook messaging a good friend who's over in Japan at the moment, and he went to a baseball game, it was just last night or the night before, um, 30,000 people at a big <coughs> baseball game, BYO. So he, I joked, I said, did you walk in with a slab? He said, no, a bottle of sake. 
But imagine that in Australia. Imagine there are 30,000 people, <laughs> oh, yeah. BYO. It would be <laughs> a disaster. It would be riots. Yeah. He said he didn't hear one argument, didn't see one person out of control. And I think that, I don't, again, I don't know why, but we, we need to get away from this idea of drinking to get drunk mm. and maybe enjoying a drink for fun. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's the, you know, this is what I'm trying to teach my kids now. Well, I wish I'd learned a lot longer. But, you know, how many will differ from person to person? But, you know, so these numbers are arbitrary. But one or two drinks or, you know, two or three drinks can be fun. We feel good. We interact better. But, you know, once you get much beyond, there's a point where it actually starts to have a deleterious effect on our behaviour and our interactions with others and on our health the next day. So we, we need to find where that cusp is. Mm-hmm. And it will be different. Obviously, different people have different tolerances. But, um, you know, there's a point at which we need to probably say enough's enough. And that's, that's one of the hardest things to learn, I suppose, when you're coming up through your teenage years and early, early to mid-20s, um, is when to sort of stop or slow down. But, but you know, not necessarily... So, you know, that binge drinking that, that we all did, I suppose... Um, that's not drinking for fun. That's, yeah. that's, you know, and it, it's also a bit about that trying to be a man. You know, I can drink more than you. That was when I was younger too. It was certainly, you know, the person that could drink the most was the, the toughest or the coolest or the most manly, which is pretty silly really, mm. in hindsight. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, if, so coming back to if people you know are experiencing mental mm. health problems, if you, if you see the warning signs in a friend and they still don't want to talk about it and you're bringing it up with them okay you're using a lot of drugs you don't seem happy your eyes are darting everywhere you look very anxious and they're just like no i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine what's what's next yeah. it's a good question because that happens a lot yeah. yeah it's really common and i suppose what we've got to understand is we you can lead a horse to water but you can't make a drink we, we can't force someone well unless they're at the very very extreme so if, um, and I hope this doesn't happen, but you know, if you, if you are with someone or know someone who's a serious risk to themselves or others, so if they're suicidal or homicidal, um, which again, hopefully won't happen too often, but, but that's when you can actually, or should actually, call the police, call the ambulance, you know, dial triple O. Um, but that's the very extreme. Um, more often than not, you know, if we just think, you know, if we've got a friend who's drinking too much, as I said, maybe taking other drugs, um, what we can do is point out those warning signs. And what, what I'd encourage people to do when you're doing that is to try and be as specific as possible. Refer to specific behaviours, not just, yeah, I think you're drinking too much or I think you, you, know, you look a bit upset, but something like, you know, when I saw you the other day, you were doing this, X, Y, Z, and you know, this is why I'm concerned. So being as specific as possible about behaviours can make it a bit more concrete, and that's part of the trouble in this whole area is it can be a bit intangible sometimes. Um, but then what we're going to try and do is then you, you want to try and nudge them towards professional help, I suppose. And that can be hard. I mean, you know, if they just say, look, you know, you're right, I really do need help. Where do I go? That's easy. But more often than not, they, they'll probably, um, for all the reasons we've talked about already, they, they might sort of you know, prevaricate or delay or whatever. Um, but then I'd suggest, um, you know, you just got to keep nudging away, keep suggesting, because if they might not be ready today, but they might be ready tomorrow or mm-hmm. they might be ready next week. And depending on who they are, if they're a friend, you'll probably know, you can send them information in different ways. So for some people, you know, direct them to a website, send them a link to a website. For some people, uh, a self-help book. Um, for other people, a podcast. Or, so there's different ways. And depending on, you know, if that person listens to a lot of podcasts, then there's some great things you can do. If that person reads a lot, there's some great books. So you know, trying to find the right way to deliver the message can make it a bit easier for them to consume. Yeah. On the topic of reading, what are some of the best books that you've read, um, particularly psychology, self-help, positive psychology books? Four, so many. Um, yeah. Maybe just like a top three. 
Well, if it comes to also well, self-help, um, uh, this well, there's a very good Australian. Uh, it's called Beating the Blues. It was written by an Australian or two Australian authors quite a few years ago now, and it's had been through several um, editions. But it's a really great self-help book for depression. There's another really good American one called Feeling Good. Um, I think it's called Feeling Good: The New Mood Therapy. Um, that's pretty good. Um, through Black Dog, there are some great books that a friend of mine actually drew his amazing illustrations for, um, Matthew Johnson. They come out through Black Dog. One, one of them's called Black Dog, and uh, they've got some great animated videos as well. So, there's, again, if you go to a lot of those, the websites referred to earlier, there's some really good um, self-help resources. Uh, positive psychology books. Um, probably one, one of the best is, is called Flourishing by Martin Seligman, which is a great overview and sort of a history and then an overview um, his first one was called Authentic Happiness, and then Flourishing is kind of the new version. Then I think he's actually got a more recent one than that. But, but that Flourishing is a really great overview of, um, uh, again, kind of the history of positive psychology and the key concepts. Um, there's another great one by Barbara Fredrickson, who's one of the leading lights, called, um, uh, called Positivity. Um, so uh, another really good one by Tal Ben-Shahar called Happier. Um, so yeah, just to, if you go to your um, well, there's not many bookstores left. But if you go to your <laughs> local bookstore, you'll find a whole range, and it's yeah, a bit we'll like some links below. Yeah, well, it, it's a bit like horses for courses. I mean, there's yeah. different styles, and it's really just about finding the one that that kind of looks right or makes sense to you. But mm. yeah. cool. um, bringing it back to the practical stuff again. So, in a, in a hypothetical scenario, someone is they knows they're anxious, they may be depressed. Um, they're aware of all the things they should be doing. They're aware they should be doing exercise. They're aware they should be doing all these things. They're aware the friends around them are probably toxic to them. They're aware that they need to make changes in their lives. They just don't feel like they have the strength to do it. And they've tried many times and it hasn't worked and they've kind of given up. They're like, okay, this is the life I'm going to lead. What's next from that? Oh, you've got some good questions. Um, another great question, because I know, so particularly, you know, when I was at my worst, and part, part of depression is lack of motivation, the sense of hopelessness and helplessness. So, you know, I just didn't feel I could do anything. Like I, yeah. literally was, I went through a stage where I could, you know, barely get out of bed, barely eat, barely, you know, reading was so hard because I couldn't concentrate. So, so it is hard, you know, if you're really depressed um, and lack of motivation and hopelessness and helplessness are overwhelming you, it's hard to do anything. And similarly with anxiety, um, you know, the most common response to anxiety is avoidance. So, you, you know, you stop doing things because they're all too difficult, they're all too distressing. But um, so, so I think that's the first thing is to acknowledge that it is difficult. Um, you know, we, we can talk about all sorts of things and and again, a lot of the strategies, um, which, which do help, sound really simple, but they're not simple. Uh, or they're not easy to do, particularly when you're I th- suffering. I think the um, strength needed to implement them and break out of your circle, do all these new things and have the discipline to come to like follow them through is so understated. Definitely. It is, you're 100% right. Um, but so what I'd say, so yeah, so that's the first thing is to acknowledge it's easier said than done. But what I'd say is just find something anything and break it down into its smallest possible unit and just you know if you can just do one thing today that might help by one tiny bit you can improve your mood for you know for five minutes for 10 minutes fantastic celebrate that you know if it's um so you know going to the gym or going for a run might really hard but can you walk around the block or you know go for a walk to the park or you know meditation can be really hard because when you're depressed and anxious it's hard to concentrate but can you just do you know a minute of slow breathing exercise or um, so again, just start really, really simple and then make it even simpler. Do whatever you can and then just try and build on that step by step. But, 
um, it is really hard. But what I can guarantee is if you do do that, if you can just do one little thing each day and then maybe another thing tomorrow, then as because when you start to do that, you'll hopefully feel a bit better, you get a bit more confident, you can take bigger steps, get a bit further. And then once you sort of get a bit momentum, it can um, uh, become a little bit easier. Um, so what are your views on social media and technology and the impact on that on mental health? Yeah, another really interesting and, and topical discussion. This comes up a lot, not surprisingly. Um, look, my personal view, and, and I think and the research supports, is that uh, like most things in life, it's good and bad. Um, there's no doubt there's a dark side to social media, or several dark sides, I suppose. There's kind of online bullying and that sort of stuff, but then there's also overuse. We know that um, you know, social media in and of itself isn't bad, but if you spend um, too many hours staring at a screen, that's not a good thing either. So. So there's certainly um, you know some traps that we can all fall into. Things like social comparison. If we you know if we look at someone's Instagram feed and just see all these perfect images and perfect holidays and perfect meals, think, well, God, my last crap! I can barely get out of bed. That's. Um, but what we need to realise is that that's not a real life. That's a mm. that's a filtered, edited life. So, so anyway, there's a, there are certainly some dark sides. But on the positive, um, there's a lot of great things we can get from social media. We can connect with other people. We can learn and you know there's some inspirational pages and motivational pages and information pages and um, we can find other people who are part of our tribe so more and more for example there are people telling real stories and sharing real stories and and that can be um, it might sound a bit depressing in a way but it can actually be quite uplifting to think you know I'm not on my own because mm. certainly one of the things that I thought years ago I thought I was the only one in the world this is yeah. before you know before Batira and before Black Dog and before a lot of these um, people were around. When I was so depressed and people weren't talking about it, I didn't know anyone else who'd suffered what I'd suffered. And, and now I think it's a great thing now that we can go to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and uh, YouTube and, and, and you know, hear other people telling stories. And, and that, that makes a massive difference. Think, God, I'm not on my own. There are other people out there. And those are some of those other people who got better. So I think, you know, it is good and there's pros and cons like almost anything. We definitely need to protect against some of those, um, some of the bad bits. Um, but we can also use it um, as a form of therapy in a way. And in fact, there are um, therapeutic options that are available online now. Um, what are your views on affirmations? Kind of like if you're going through like something, like let's say you're about to do a speech or something, feeling a bit anxious, is it, is it worth just saying to yourself, you got this, um, things are going to be okay? Uh, yes and no, again. Because <laughs> um, like, I've, I've, I've given that answer to a few things, which is, which is sort of a sign of the complexities of some yeah. of these issues. So what we know from the research is that affirmations can be good or bad. Um, and the, the, the crux of the matter seems to be whether, um, whether they're authentic or genuine or whether they're really meaningful for you. If I just try to say something that someone else has said, and if it's just blatantly unrealistic, it's not going to work. And in fact, it can be damaging because mm -hmm. if it's if it's unrealistic then what can happen sometimes is you kind of set yourself up for failure and you get more disappointed you know so if, if i you know looked in the mirror every day and said you know, i'm the most beautiful person in the world well i'm not i'm never going to be i'm not a supermodel i'm not a you know i'm not brad pitt or whoever you might want to say i could you know look in the mirror every day and say i'm you know i'm the fastest man in the world well i'm not i'm never going to be i could i could go and train and get faster but i'm never going to beat usain bolt or whatever mm. so but that's some of the silly stuff that you get sometimes see yeah. in that area. I, I kind of exaggerated like self-help books and yeah. Yeah, and I kind of exaggerated that to make a point. But it, but that's what sometimes happens. Yeah. You know, I'm the greatest. I can do anything. Well, I'm not. I can't do anything. So that, I think that's the. So, so yes, they can be helpful, but they've got to be realistic, and they've got to be, 
you know, we're all different and we all use different language. So it's got to be, again, authentic to me. It's got to be meaningful to me. Um, so if you read something like that and if it works, great. But if it's not working, then what I'd encourage people to do is, again, just play around with the language, use different words, make sure it's, um, again, make sure it's realistic and, and helpful um, because then it can um, you know, be really useful. Um, something I've kind of read and speculated about is given the um, current anxiety and depression that's amongst young people, I've read that, actually, we actually studied this in one of our courses. Um, it was about the philosophy, philosophy of happiness. Of happiness. Yeah. And it talks about why people who are religious are more happiness and what, more so, why people who are religious yeah. are more happy. And one of the big things that they said was the sense of community. Mm. And nowadays, when we have things like Netflix, Uber Eats, there's kind of no reason to leave your house a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people I talk to find it so struggle, a big struggle to get people out of the house and actually together. Mm. And it seems like people are supplementing like a message versus like a dinner with it friends. It also happens a lot when transitioning out of high school and into mm. university, this big world, and you don't have that sense of tight community. Don't see people much. every day. It can be quite so, isolating. Yeah, definitely a couple of really good points there. Um, so there is some research that suggests uh, religious people are happier, um, but that can be interpreted in different ways. It's a correlational finding, not necessarily a causational one. Um, so and so. Um, the, most people understand that as, if you look at the fundamentals that will contribute, it's not necessarily the religious, or not entirely the religious beliefs, but as you said, the biggest thing is probably that sense of community, that sense of belonging. And you can get, you know, you don't have to be religious, but that's, historically that's where most people did get that, their local church, their local mosque, their local whatever. Um, increasingly in Australia, we've moved away from that. Um, uh, I'm an atheist, um, but... You know, there are other ways, and, and I'd suggest it is important to find other communities. And it can be anything. I mean, it, it could be a local footy club. It can be, um, you know, some sort of hobby, uh, whatever it might be. But it is important. We, we, we need to sense that we belong. And if, you're not, if you are religious, fine, that's, that's okay. But if you're not, um, I would encourage you to try and find some other family, in a sense, not your family. Um, but the other things are with religions that, um, you know, if you look at the basic tenets of any religion, it's basically about living a good life. You know, typically living a healthy life, you know, don't steal, don't kill. And they're good things that we should do. Um, so Alain de Botton, who's a, an English philosopher, yeah, wrote a book um, a while ago called Religion for Atheists. And that's essentially what he did. He tried to sort of pull out the, you know, he said, you know, it's not about religion being good or bad, but what, what are the helpful aspects? And, and it's what we're talking about. It's living a healthy life. It's doing good, being a good person, um, you know, finding a sense of community. And, um, and that they're all important. Um, there's no doubt that, um, you know, if we can find those things in any way possible, uh, we, we will tend to be happier. Yeah, just for hypothetical, um, people that kind of finish high school, see people every day, and then don't transition on to university, um, and are working jobs, or um, there's, there's no real way to see your friends that much. And if most people in our generation do spend a lot of time sitting at home, Netflixing, um, ordering food, not going out. Um, how can we kind of bring this face-to-face -face communication back into society? Well, I think you can. I mean, it's it's just a matter of prioritising. Yeah. Um, you know, you can easily work full time and still socialise. Um, it just takes a bit of organising. And it, look, it can be difficult when, if you're in a sort of say a nine to five type job and a lot of your friends are at university, which isn't nine to five, obviously, it might be a bit trickier. But if it's a priority, you'll make it happen. You still find times on an evening or a weekend to catch up. And I guess that's, you know, that's the crux of a lot of things we talked about. When I, when we look at the happiest, most successful people, um, they don't have more time. 
you know, they don't have more um, more motivation necessarily. What they what they typically do is prioritise the important things, and we know that friendships is definitely one of the most important things. So you need to prioritise, and and maybe it takes a bit more of an effort. I guess when we're at school, it doesn't take any effort because you're hanging out with the same people every day. Mm. You might play footy with him on the weekend, then you hang out on the weekend. It's kind of quite easy, and it, and it is a bit more difficult, I suppose, when you get to university or belong, and then, you know, and then people get married at different ages, they have kids at different. So it does get a bit more difficult. But if it's important, we you know, when we make an effort, we can find a way. It might be a bit different to what we did two years ago, um, but we do, and we need to, you know, sitting at home just watching Netflix and um, ordering Uber Eats is not necessarily a great life. Um, well, not every night. There's nothing wrong with it necessarily. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're doing that every single life, I, I'd suggest you need to review, you know, what's important? What what, what other things can you do? And um, and start to plan a bit better to make sure you've got time for other things that, that will give greater pleasure and greater enjoyment and, uh, and greater interaction. In your idea, um, maybe just in three simple words, what constitutes a great life? Probably being good. Um, I think one of the things I talk a lot about is so, so a lot of people think about happiness as feeling good, mm. um, and it is about feeling good, but it's probably just as much, if not more, about being good. Yeah. Um, and to go back, I'll, I'll give them another plug, Batir, um, who uh, I think a great organisation who I've given um, you know, a lot of time to in the last six or seven years. Uh, that's been, it's one of the most satisfying periods of my life, and I've had lots of other achievements. And um, But to feel that I'm contributing to what I believe uh, is a really good cause, mm. um, with the expectation of nothing in return. Like, well, I don't get paid. I don't, well, I mean, I get, I get thanks in return, which is lovely. But, um, but you know, it's, it's actually a wonderful thing to give a lot without being paid. We, you know, we need to work, obviously, and we need to have jobs, and we need to get paid. But if you can find something above and beyond that, the satisfaction is incomparable. Yeah. Um, now, that, you know, that's just my thing. It might be different to you. And obviously, at different stages of our lives, we've got different time, and we can give in different ways. But just be, being a good person, uh, helping others, um, I think that also goes to that community aspect that we've sort of lost a lot of. I think we've, here in Australia, and a lot, across a lot of the Western world, particularly in America, I think there's been this real focus on individualism. And, yeah. and that's actually been one of the criticisms of Jordan Peterson as well, in a sense, the sort of focus on the individual. But if we look at the happiest communities in the world, there is a stronger sense of community through, um, you know, through the Scandinavian countries. There's a stronger social, um, you know, social um, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, social services, etc. Yeah. Through a lot of the South American countries, there's a really strong, and Asian countries, really strong sense of family and mm. you know, the village is the. Yeah, something we definitely don't have in Australia. That well, we don't have it as much, and much. I think yeah, I think yeah. that's a real a real pity. So, but but in being good, um, you know, again, I just from my experience, so Batir now is it's almost like a second family. That's my that's my my herd. It's my tribe in a sense. Um, and if you can find that, um, you know, you'd be well on your way to, to enjoying a good life. Awesome. Um, maybe we should leave it at that. That's yeah. a good note to finish up on. Um, thanks a lot for the talk, Tim. That was excellent. Thanks, Kurt. A lot of um, golden nuggets of wisdom from that. Cool. And yeah. yeah pleasure. Awesome. awesome.